NetConnect is an initiative of Core2Ed. This podcast is supported by an independent educational grant from ASI Europe Limited. The views in this podcast are the personal opinions of the experts. They do not necessarily represent the views of the experts' academic institution or the rest of the NetConnect group. For expert disclosures on any conflict of interest, please visit the Core2Ed website. Hello and welcome to this podcast on optimal management on differentiated thyroid cancer with um, vascular endothelial role factor receptor multikinase inhibitors. So I'm Jaume Capdevila, a medical oncologist at Vallebron University Hospital in Barcelona, in Spain, and I'm joined today with my colleague Raquel. Hello, Raquel. Hello, Shaum. Uh, I will introduce myself. I'm um, Dr. Raquel van Leeuwarden, and I'm an endocrinologist from the University Medical Center of Utrecht in the Netherlands, and I'm delighted to join uh, you today. So great. So today we are going to, to discuss uh, the recommendation of optimizing the management of radioactive iodine refractory differentiated thyroid cancer with these multikinase inhibitors and how to minimize and manage the adverse events in order to enable maximal dose intensity and ensure the best outcomes for our patients. So Raquel, perhaps you may start by giving us a brief overview of the multikinase inhibitors and where these fit in the treatment of patients with advanced radioactive iodine refractory DTC. Yes, of course. So for the first-line treatment of a patient with advanced differentiated thyroid cancer, that is refractory to radioactive iodine, we now have the first-line treatment of lenfatinib and sirtuinib. Both of the treatments should be considered. And we know the trials, of course. Uh, for example, the phase three decision trial, we see a more or less significant mean-free progression-free survival of 10 months uh, in patients on sirtuinib. And for the SELECT trial, we see a median PFS of 18 months in patients on lenfatinib. And actually, in the pre-treated group, there was a PFS of 15 months. And in the older population of patients uh, over 65 years of age, we actually saw an overall survivor benefit in that category of patients on lenvatinib. And uh, you also know, Jean, that the ESMO advises either lenvatinib or seravanib. But the recent COSMIC uh, trial, the COSMIC 311 data, showed significant progression-free survival benefit um, in patients uh, with cabosantinib versus placebo in uh, patients who were pre-treated either with lenfatinib or sorafenib. So the treatments uh, with sorafenib and lenfatinib have shown efficacy, um, but they are associated with significant side effects. So, Shalm, um, what are the main side effects um, that you're most concerned about for your patients treated with multikinase inhibitors, and how do we manage them? So, this is this is the reality, you no? Know? So, we we change a lot our experience treating these patients with advanced differentiated thyroid cancer. I remember perfectly 15 years ago when we had almost nothing, and now we have at least two approved drugs and the third one that will came with cabozantinib after the Cosmic 311, as you said. And it's also true that we should manage the new side effects of these uh, multikinase inhibitors that are not exactly the same that we may expect uh, in different tumor types. You know, for those patients with thyroid cancer, usually are on therapy for many months compared with other solid cancers. So uh, some of these side effects may appear on time on therapy. No, and not all multikinase inhibitors are the same. And in terms of efficacy as you just reviewed, and also in, in terms of toxicity. 
the, the different affinity that we have with these multikinase inhibitors against their targets, we may expect different toxicity. We will have typical toxicity of sorafenib, lembatinib, and cabozantinib. And there are some side effects that are pretty similar with all TKIs, like a class effect toxicity. For instance, hypertension or fatigue or GI uh, effects or toxicity, you know, diarrhea, weight loss, nausea and vomiting. But it's also true that you may expect some uh, of these side effects more intense in, in a particular uh, TKI. For instance, sorafenib, uh, typical side effects uh, that may impact the quality of life uh, of our patients are probably hand-foot syndrome and diarrhea. And there are some other side effects that are typical from sorafenib, for instance, you know, like alopecia or secondary skin tumors due to the BRAF inhibition. If we move to, to the lembatinib toxicity profile as being probably one of the most potent TKIs that with antigenic effect that we have on, on the market, the typical vascular side effects are those that uh, we may expect to see more frequently and uh, we should keep an eye on these side effects because we should avoid uh, potential complications. Hypertension probably is the, the most frequent one, and we may start systemic therapy for this hypertension in the early beginning to avoid these potential complications. With lembatinib, for instance, all the typical side effects may include, that may induce, induce those reductions, and this is also important at the time of, of, the, of the management of these therapies in the first months, are fatigue and anorexia, and also weight loss. To try to reduce this toxicity, you know, the concept of Prehabilitation is increasing uh, in relevance in the management of these patients and probably allowing a better performance status before starting you know, the systemic therapy. I don't know, Rachel, if you, are, uh, if you have experience with this uh, prehabilitation approach or if you have a multidisciplinary approach to manage these uh, side effects. For instance, we have a nurse that is with a call center that is extremely helpful to manage the, the initial uh, side effects that the patient may have and then to try to, to correct them uh, very quickly. So what, what I do in general, you probably have patients in care for many years. So my, my experience is with uh, differential thyroid cancer. And then you know at a certain point that you're moving towards treating patients with a multicanase inhibitor. And I usually start an lymphatinib, so I try to see whether there's hypertension in the patient. And then I try to manage that before I start treating a patient with lymphatinib. And I prefer to choose an ACE inhibitor also to prevent or to treat the proteinuria, which will start with a patient on lymphatinib. That's what I do before I will start with a multikinase inhibitor. I'll see what I can manage beforehand, especially acute cardiovascular problems that can start during your treatment. So I want to optimize the cardiovascular risk um, before treatment. And that is one of the most important things I actually do. And of course, you start with explaining patients that um, to avoid hand-foot problems. I refer them actually to podiatrists, uh, medical pedicures. That's how we call it in the Netherlands. Just to remove thick calluses, um, thick nails, to make sure that they will get an, uh, the good advices about and um, trying to uh, prevent pressure on their feet, um, the podiatrist can give them advice on that, uh, what shoes to use, for example. And um, that's what I do before I start with the treatment also, just to make sure they don't have that much 
problems and like simple advices about keeping the hands moist, uh, not using too hot water, things like that. We're talking about um, avoiding discontinuation of the treatment because of all the side effects. Uh, lately at ESCO, there was um, an abstract on drug holidays and um, they saw that patient on Lentvatinib actually. If patients, um, when you have a planned holiday, that overall survival time to treat to next treatment is even longer if you have a planned drug holiday. So if you see that patients will go to very severe adverse events and you stop uh, for one week, and if the side effects prolong, then you stop for two weeks and then you go on. That's better to, than to wait until side effects uh, progress. I don't know what your um, experience is in that. Yeah, for sure. These results probably help our decisions because we do not have probably all the schedules that we may uh, apply to our patients with these TKIs. For instance, no, this it's not only always reducing doses of the drug, trying to to avoid this or to improve these side effects. It's also important, no, trying to maintain at the end of several months the dose dense that is pretty related with the efficacy of these of these compounds. And the half-life of these multikinase inhibitors is quite short. So this means that when we stop therapy for a short period of time, usually side effects improve quite quickly. And then we can do these planned vacations or and probably there are other approaches like some kind of stop-and-go schedules. So stop-and-go strategies uh, that may reduce the intensity of toxicity and then ensure the, the long-term efficacy of these drugs. And this is important. And this is a, a curse of learning because at the end of the day, uh, you will you know, be more confident with the approach that you are uh, giving to your patients to try to manage these side effects. You suggested a couple of tips. When you have these recommendations to the patients that you see that it works, then you use that more frequently. For instance, I remember perfectly when we included our first patient in the select study, it was the first time for me using lembatinib in a patient. So that patient had a high hypertension in the first week. And then this was before the protocol amendment to have the, the first phone call to the patients in the first seven days of on therapy. Now I'm giving the, the antihypertensive drug on the first day with the lembatinib to our patients. And then we call them. And when you call them and say, okay, how is your blood pressure? It's fine, fantastic, but it's increasing. So you don't need to go to the hospital again or to the, G to the GP because you have the pill for the hypertension at home. And then you can treat that uh, on the first day. Diarrhea for sorafenib, for instance, and that sometimes is quite explosive after taking the, the pills of sorafenib. If you take aloperamide between pill and pill of sorafenib, then you can improve that diarrhea. So there are some tips that may help you. So more prevention, actually, more prevention of side effects, yes. Probably this is the concept of this prehabilitation. It's not only sending our patients to the gym to be more fit before starting the systemic therapy, because this is probably an ideal world, but the reality is much different. But if you can manage you know, the journey of the patient uh, together with the people that helps you, because it's not only you, this is a multidisciplinary approach. So this for sure ensures the long-term benefit. No, I totally agree, Sham. I totally agree. So, Sham, you mentioned don't dance, and maybe for the non-oncologists uh, listening, can you explain that term? Well, when I mean those dance, means the highest dose possible. So you perfectly know that the the response and the time of that response is clearly related with the dose. 
And this is uh, nicely reported with the Lembat and Ipe studies. There are subgroup analyses that were uh, published in independent publications that uh, clearly show that those patients that can maintain high doses of, of the drug uh, obtain better uh, benefits. But this is something that is quite usual in oncology. So the dose-dense concept is that. So trying to maintain higher doses as maximum as possible, trying to obtain this uh, maximum benefit to the vast majority of our patients. So uh, my next question is, when is the best time to initiate systemic treatment uh, with uh, multikinase inhibitors for these patients? It's changing on experience. And again, I, I, don't, I don't want to give a, an image of I'm a, a, an older guy, so I'm very young, but I perfectly remember when we started to treat our patients with thyroid cancer with the first TKIs. So we came from an effective chemotherapy. So it was early 2000s. And we started with the first uh, multikinase inhibitors at that time. And we treated all comers, regardless the parameters that we use today to guide our decisions, uh, such as documented disease progression, symptoms, tumor burden, biomarkers, and tumor volume doubling times. This was impossible to imagine at that time. What we learned is that not all patients need systemic treatment at the, at the time that they are becoming refractory to iodine. So uh, these mentioned figures, you know, progression, symptoms, tumor burden, are the really important point to decide when to start systemic treatment. The, the particular definition of these parameters probably include uh, the multidisciplinary vision uh, in each center, uh, the experience, and of course, patient desires. So I don't know which are your thoughts on this, on this topic. I think I think it's more or less the same. I don't have that long experience as you yourself. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> um, but what I <laughs> what I do is see uh, lots of patients with thyroid cancer, and I see them from the moment they have a nodule in their thyroid gland. So I see the whole journey of the patient, and uh, as soon as the patient is iodine refractory, then I will start talking about the future. And that there will be a point that I can start giving them multikinase inhibitors. Um, so they know upfront what's going to happen. And I also, what I do, I explain them that I will start treatment either when they were having uh, symptoms, lots of disease burden, which can be operated. There's no surgery possible. Then I will start an, an um, a systemic therapy or uh, if I see that there is a very, very aggressive tumor, if I see progression in, in only a few months or very fast duplication of thyroglobulin levels, for example. So I think it's more or less the same. And of course, the multidisciplinary th team meetings are very important um, to have and to decide what the advice is of the meeting and then bring that back to the patient. Fully agree, Raquel, fully agree. We may touch a couple of Additional points before finishing our, our talk today, no? One important point is how do you select the BGFR TKI treatment for each patient? How do you make that decision? If we, if we start with one TKI, we are thinking that we will do a kind of sequence because the first shot is the first shot. And probably this is a, a big question in the setting, no? And, and we don't have a comparative trial and probably we will never have. And we don't have any biomarker to guide our decisions. I, I believe that you agree with me that lembatinib is clearly more potent in terms of response and PFS, no? Mm -hmm. And this is a major concept to decide which therapy should be used first. But in, in oncology, we usually uh, use our best treatment strategy upfront. 
to avoid progressions and, and, and complications that may compromise patient's outcome. Being that said, of course, comorbidities, patient expectations, tumor burden, disease, disease progression rate, uh, symptoms are also important parameters taking into account uh, which first therapy should be started. For me, it's quite clear that those patients that have a more aggressive tumor with high tumor burden, well, risk of complications, for instance, symptoms that may improve if we reduce the tumor burden, all these patients should be treated with lembatinib upfront. And probably do you agree with me? But with the options that we have today, how do you manage the sequential therapies for these patients? I agree with you. I generally start with lenfatinib uh, because of superior efficacy, of course. There are limited data on the treatment sequence um, of multikinase treatment, but there is a recent publication you know about Xiaom uh, <laughs> on the treatment of cabosantinib. I mentioned earlier a second line systemic uh, therapy for patients who are either on sertafenib or lenfatinib. And there is a uh, prolonged PFS um, when you treat them with cabosantinib. And you're involved with the trial, so you should tell us about it. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's true, it's true that we are lucky that we are having more and more data of randomized clinical trials that probably will help us to, you know, to create this. Uh, sequential concept of, of TKIs. Starting with lembatinib, today the strongest data that we have is to continue with cabozantinib. And when we will have the, the approvals, that it's not still approved, probably this will be the best uh, strategy for the vast majority of patients. But if patients start with sorafenib? Yes, that, 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 that's that's a difficult question. I think <laughs> that I would probably start with lenfatinib afterwards and then cabosantinib, but because it's not at, in the Netherlands, so we have to also see what the national regulations are, what's approved in your own country. And we have sorafenib and lenfatinib at this time. Um, but honestly, we have, I work also in the National Cancer Institute here in the Netherlands. We have many studies also on molecular profile. So we test uh, the molecular profile of the patients up front. And for example, I had a patient with, I have to say it correctly, PIK3CA mutation recently. So he will start in a trial with alpalisib soon. So that's even before the cabosantinib because I can give it to him in this study. Uh, so that's also important where you work and what the opportunities are. So first sort of sorafenib, then probably nevatinib, and then seeing whether I have a study here where patients can participate in. That would be the possibilities here in the Netherlands at this time. Yeah, so this is this is the quick view of the of the future, no? So uh, of course, clinical trials are also always important in all our patients with cancer and not only with thyroid cancer. I said before that we do not have clear biomarkers to select the systemic therapy for our patients. Well, this is not a hundred percent true uh, because you know that uh, we have the NTRACT and RET uh, fusions in DTC that this can be treated with the selective uh, inhibitors against Entract and against RET. So for me, and, and, and again, this is my personal opinion, I believe that this molecular profiling uh, for our patients with advanced stage thyroid cancer, the molecular profiling should be mandatory for all our patients. Because if we may offer our patients these selective inhibitors, this should be offered to them, uh, probably before everything. No, that's true. And uh, the question is, because there's only a selection of 5 to 10% of all the patients with differentiated cancer that will come into a stage that they need 
systemic therapy. Even so, I have young young women uh, who don't, who I can't give Yodan anymore, but they only have a few lymph nodes. That's it. So the question is, should you do the testing then or just wait until there will be systemic therapy probably in the, in the next year or so? That's, that's a question. I don't know at which point would be the best. Well, probably at the time of no thinking about the systemic therapy, the, the, the advantage of these fusions and even the BRAF mutation, for instance, these are root mutations. So these are mutations that are uh, in the early beginning of the carcinogenesis process. So these are not acquired. Uh, you may test that even some time before start, no? before the time that you expect to start this systemic therapy. But this is a hot topic also uh, that probably deserves a full podcast to, to discuss that. <laughs> so I, I'm sincerely enjoying uh, this talk, Raquel, but probably uh, we need to finish the po this podcast. So we can meet again in the near future, maybe, uh, to continue discussing on thyroid management. To summarize our, our talk today, so no, we have learned about efficacy parameters of the current PKIs, how to manage toxicity, trying to optimize treatment outcomes, preserving al always patients' quality of life. We also discussed about treatment strategies, when to start, which drugs should be used first, how to sequence therapies, and a very, a very quick view of future. So, great. I believe that we covered a lot. So I can only say you, Raquel, a big thank you for your time and your knowledge. Uh, thank you all podcast listeners. Hope you have enjoyed it. And of course, Corturet and ASI for giving us the opportunity to share our free ideas on this topic. So I believe that we may say stay safe and goodbye. Yes, thank you, Sham, for this interesting talk. Hope to talk to you soon. This NetConnect podcast was brought to you by CoreToEd Independent Medical Education. Please visit coretoed.com for more information.